Thank you, Matt, for praying and reading for us. I got to admit, I'm a little distracted by that beautiful stained glass window that the sun is like shining straight through the top of it right now, kind of blinding me. It's beautiful. This place is beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? It is. It is so beautiful. Hey, one announcement, by the way, I forgot. Um, Christmas Eve, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. It's an hour-long service. It's a shortened lessons and carols service. If you don't know what that is, Google it. Um, So it's a shortened version of the lessons and carols service from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. There won't be nursery or anything like that, but you are totally free to bring coloring books and things like that and have your kids in the back there and, and let them just roam around while we sing and celebrate Christmas Eve together. Uh, we, we've had it earlier in the past, but Knox is planning to be in here at 4 o'clock, so we couldn't get that time slot. Anyhow, 6 p.m. if you can make it, that'd be great. Um, so here we are, uh, once again, considering Advent. Is everybody okay with those windows being opened, by the way? Like, I don't want anybody to get cold. But, yeah? All right. Uh, Who's going to say, no, I hate it? I'm the one person who's cold. Um, Sorry. We're thinking about Advent. We're thinking about the coming of Jesus into the world. The incarnation that the creator of the universe actually embodied human form took on a human nature, added a human nature to his divine nature, and lived as a human being in this world. Now, the first week that we did this, we we thought about this, this, that fact, the being of Christ. We, We thought about how Jesus is described by John here as the Logos. So, we were wrestling with what it means for Jesus to be uh, fully God and fully man. Then the second week, we looked at the mission of Christ. We said that, that Jesus came into this world as life and to bring life and to bring light. That's what we talked about the, third, the second week. And this week, we're talking about how Jesus came into this world to solve a problem. See, week two was about how we were spiritually dead, that outside of the intervention of God, human beings are spiritually dead. And I I don't have time to define all that for you and explain it all for you again, so if you're curious as what that means, because you missed last week, you can always find out online. But the question is, you know, why are we spiritually dead? Why are human beings spiritually dead outside of the intervention of Jesus Christ? What caused it? And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. And, and the cause of this problem is summed up in one word. Sin. That's the problem. The Bible teaches that all human beings are born with what's called a sinful nature. Now, you need to understand that that's not just, doesn't mean that we're just born with kind of a flaw you know, like you were born with a cowlick or something like that, or maybe a digit missing. It's not saying that we were born with, with some sort of disability or some sort of infirmity. No, 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 no. The Bible goes much, much deeper than that, and it says that there is a fundamental disposition that human beings have that is sinful. There is an orientation that human beings have that is sinful. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that, that, that it is part of our DNA, it is part of our core essence to be sinful. And therefore, without the intervention of God in our lives, we remain spiritually dead. 
we've been doing this thing all, all Advent long. We think about one word, then we thought about two words. This week we're going to think about one word again. We're going to think about the word sin. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what a bummer. Like, Christmas time, it's Christmas time. Preacher, you're going to talk to us about, so you're going to spend like 30 minutes telling us how sinful we are during Christmas time. Christmas is supposed to be warm and cozy. It's supposed to be about chestnuts roasting on an open fire, you know, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, that kind of stuff. Sin, that concept is depressing. Why are we going to do that? Why are we going to talk about sin of all things? We just sang joy to the world for crying out loud. Well, this is why. Yes, Christmas is a joyful, happy time of year, but you also need to understand that, that Christmas is actually an insult to the human race. <laughs> it is an affront. It is, it is an offense to our sensibilities. Because you see, Christmas is about Jesus coming into the world to deal with sin. Each of us is probably going to, at some point over the next few weeks, gather with other people and exchange gifts. A lot of people do that. They exchange gifts at Christmas time. Now, now that can be a lot of fun, but uh, some gifts that you can, can receive can actually be received as an insult. So, for example, when I get together with my family and I'm going to open my gifts and, and I open up the first box and I see a, a bottle of Rogaine sitting there and, and uh, beside that I see a, a box that says just for men uh, on, on the side for hair treatment or something like that and maybe there's a, a, an exercise book at the bottom of the box, I might be a little bit offended because this is what my family is telling me. You're old and you're out of shape. And you're losing your hair, guy. So, so some gifts can be an offense to us. Well, Jesus Christ is the ultimate gift to the world. But in his coming as a gift, we are being offended. We are being insulted. We just sang, what child is this? Why did Jesus come into the world? Nails, spears would pierce him through. Something be born for me and you. The what? cross the cross be born for me and you I thought I had that memorized and I, I think I did this morning but not anymore anyhow so Jesus Jesus came to do something he came to die for us that was his purpose because we're sinners now Christmas happens at the darkest time of year okay so if you're like, this is really like kind of a bummer, this is a bit of a downer to be thinking about sin at Christmas time, understand something. Christmas happens at the most, the most darkest time of the year. Why? Because that's when the light shines the brightest. And so it's against the backdrop of our sin that the light of Jesus Christ shines the brightest in our lives. In other words, you cannot grasp how incredible it is that Jesus came to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died until you come to grips with the fact that you needed him to do that as, because you're a sinner. And since all this Advent, what we want to do is we want to exalt Jesus. We want to think about Jesus. We want to work out the implications of the greatness of Jesus. We have to think through 
the significance of sin. So that's what we're going to do together. We're going to think about three things. We're going to look at the universality of sin from this passage. We're going to think about the essence of sin from this passage. And then we're going to look at the healing of sin from this passage. So let's go. First of all, the universality of sin. When you read verses 10 and 11, and that's where the vast majority of our time is going to be spent this morning, it's very interesting. It says, he was in the world... And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And if you read that quickly, you might think that he's just sort of saying two things, um, or one thing in two different ways, but he's not. John identifies two different groups. He identifies this group called the world, and then he identifies this group called the, his own. Now, in the Gospel of John, the more you read it, the, the more you see that that world can refer to two things. It can refer to sort of the cosmos, the universe, the created order. But oftentimes, John uses it as a word to describe the pagan community the Gentile community, the non-Jewish people, the people who were different from the Jews and had different faiths from the Jews, different religions from the Jews. And when it says that he also came to his own and his own did not receive him, of course he's talking about the Jewish people, the people who had the Old Testament, the people who had the prophecies of his coming, the people who had the Ten Commandments, his own religious community. And so what you have here is John identifying the bad people, pagans, idolaters, right? Worshiping other gods. They were, God, uh, John says, they were created by him. They were made by God himself. And yet, they didn't recognize their creator. Paul talks about this uh, in a different way in Romans chapter 1. Listen to what he says in verses 18 and following. It's quite something. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what would... What may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the foundation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, having been clearly seen, you look out in the world and you can see that there is an artist behind all this beauty that you see, okay? Having been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And then he goes on to say this. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And listen for it. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul is clearly describing what happens when you, when you turn your way back away from the true God, the living God, and you instead embrace a God of your own making. And that is the world that John is describing. So those are the bad people. You can, you can define them as the bad people. But then John also includes the good people. He says he came to his own. And they did not receive him. These are the people who had the law. These are the people who followed the law. These are the people who prayed to the God of the Old Testament, prayed to the God of Abraham. These are the people who went to synagogue. These were people who followed the morality of the Old Testament. And John is saying that both groups, Jew, Gentile, world, his own, 
Both groups reject Jesus. This word that he uses for, for, for the world when he says they don't recognize him, it's a very interesting world. It's, it's, it's the world for acknowledging. It's, sorry, the word for acknowledging. They didn't acknowledge. They didn't accept it. They didn't, they didn't assent to the truth of who he was. And the word here for, for receive means they didn't take hold of him. The picture here is of Matthew. You know, or sorry, the picture, not of Matthew, but Matthew describes this beautifully. In Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, of course, Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem, and where, where do they go? They go to try to find room in an inn, right? But there is no room for, their inn, for them in the inn. And so the picture you have is that, that the door to the inn has been slammed in their faces. They've rejected him. They've not received him. And that's the picture John is painting here of the entire religious community that Jesus is a part of, the Jews. They've shut the door on Jesus. But the point is this. Both groups refuse to receive him. In other words, everybody has rejected Christ. And and don't forget, you would too. We talked a little bit about this last week. You know, you you may think to yourself, as I read the Bible, if I read the Old Testament, I got to tell you, man, or not the Old Testament, the New Testament, when I see what Jesus has done, he's miracles and teaching and all this kind of incredible stuff. I would have seen Jesus for who he really is. And the truth is, John is saying, no, you wouldn't. You'd be as much a fool as they were. All of us, left to ourselves, want nothing to do with the God-man who came to this world. Now, that, that should particularly scare church people. Because John is saying that you can be very religious and yet not receive Jesus for who he is. You can can go to church, you can listen to sermons, you can be part of a community, you can even serve very faithfully in all kinds of volunteer ministries, you can do all that kind of stuff. You can act very religiously but never have actually received Jesus for who he is and how he should be received. Now, the question becomes, how in the world is that possible? How in the world is that possible? And that's point two. So the universality of sin. All people are sinners. All have rejected Jesus. What is the essence of sin? John says that, that people didn't recognize him, that they didn't acknowledge him, that they didn't receive him. He's speaking again about our essence. Now, this is an important point to remember. Most people, when they think about sin and what sin is, they basically think that it is breaking rules. It's breaking laws. God has laws. He has commands. They're all listed there in various parts of the Bible. And when you break that law and you break that command, you have sinned. I went on Google just for kicks and I googled definition of sin and this is what I got an immoral act an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law an immoral act that is defined as considered to be a transgression against divine law now that is absolutely true That is sin. Every time you lie, every time you steal, every time you hate in your heart, every time you murder, these things are actual sins, no doubt about it. But that can't be all there is to it, you know. 
Because there's lots of characters in the New Testament, specifically, there are, some, there are some very specific examples of characters in the New Testament who actually keep the law. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 19, there's a story of a rich young man. He comes to Jesus and he's very earnest, he's very conscientious. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he looks like he is, he is earnest and that he is conscientious and that he's very concerned and, uh, about salvation and doing what is right in the eyes of God. And, and Jesus says to him, he goes, well, you know the Ten Commandments. You know what they say. Keep the Ten Commandments. And the man says in response, I've done that since I was a boy. And interestingly enough, Jesus does not contradict him. Jesus doesn't go, ha, rich young man, you say that you have kept the law, but I know you lied back in 18 AD when your mom told you to put away your toys and you said, I did, but you actually didn't. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, I remember when you were in a relationship with that girl and then you broke up and you were so mad you hated her in your heart, so you committed murder. No, 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 he doesn't say any of that kind of stuff. He says, yeah, here's the thing that you lack. Go. Sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and follow me. It's very interesting because, you see, that's not a law. There's no law in the Bible that you can look to that says you and I need to sell all that we have and give our money to the poor and and follow Jesus. And so, what's going on here? Well, the problem was, was that this young man loved money. It was, in a sense, his savior. Jesus wasn't. It was first in his life. Jesus was not first in his life. Now, if the Bible is true, listen, guys, if the Bible is true, then everything we've been saying for the last couple weeks has to be true. Jesus actually is the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth who who contained the very nature of the all-powerful creator of the universe. The other the transcendent one was contained in this one human being named Jesus. And he made you. He made your brainwaves fire so that you have consciousness. He made you be able to think so that when I talk to you, you don't just hear wah, 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 wah. You actually hear words that are decipherable and can be understood. He made you in such a way so that your heart beats and the blood goes whoosh, whoosh, whoosh through your veins and it feeds the rest of your body in ways that are far beyond my understanding. He is the one who has done all these things for you. And he comes to this world and he says, I love you. I want a relationship with you. I want you to know me with the kind of intimacy that I already know you as your creation, as your creator. But I don't want to know you just as your creator, right? Like if, I, if I'm a carpenter and I build a chair, I'm the creator of that chair, but I don't have any kind of relationship with that chair. But a parent, you know, by God's grace and the miracle of, of what's that called? Having a baby, I guess. Uh, of having a baby. You have, you have created this life that has come from you, but you have a relationship with it, Right? 
And Jesus is saying, I am the one who has created you. I am the one who's made the brain waves work. I'm the one who's pumping the heart. I'm the one who's making the lungs work. I'm the one who's done all that kind of stuff. And I want to have an intimate relationship with you. I want us to be in fellowship with one another. Uh, what kind of re- relationship do you want to have? What kind of relationship ought you to have with a being like that? Do you think he wants to be your buddy? Do you think someone who contains the very essence of the only power that really exists in this universe wants to be your pal, wants to be your colleague? Do you think the God-man just wants to hang out with you when you've got time? Maybe advise you when you've got, you know, things that you need to think through and wrestle with makes no sense does it no what he wants is he wants all of you he wants you to love him with all of you why do you think it says that the first command is to love the lord the greatest command is to love the lord your god with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength it is a way of god communicating to us i want all of you that's the only relationship that makes sense okay and the essence of sin is essentially to spurn that relationship. To reject the lordship of Jesus Christ, the godness of Jesus Christ, the goodness of Jesus Christ. You go back to Genesis chapter 2, or no, 3, and in Genesis 3, we learn that Adam and Eve were given one rule in the garden. How's that for a religion, hey? Here's your one rule. Can you remember that? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it's not, it's not like some kind of moral rule like don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't whatever, right? Like those are sort of moral absolutes. It's not that kind of rule. Why did God say to Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree? That's the one thing you're not allowed to do. Was it poisonous? Did God put a poisonous tree in there? No. God put that tree in there and he said to them, don't eat of that tree and he didn't explain why because he was saying to them, I want you to believe in me and obey me simply because you acknowledge that I am God and you're not. You're honoring my goodness. You're honoring my godness. You're submitting to my nature as the one who has the right to define what is good and what is right for anyone in, and you honor my glory. You, you obey me not to benefit yourself, you just obey me because of who I am, period. Because you love me. And what do Adam and Eve say? As soon as Adam and Eve ask the question, should we disobey? They already did. They already did. Because they questioned the goodness of God. They questioned the godness of God. In essence, they flipped the relationship. The relationship was supposed to be, you are my creation, I have made you, and I love you, and you need to trust me fully and completely, and when you do that, you will absolutely flourish. And as soon as they doubted, as soon as that rotten devil got in there, and he planted that seed of doubt and made them wonder, should we decide for ourselves whether we should obey God's command or not? 
They flipped the relationship. Friends, all sin starts there. What's the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther said it, and every theologian probably since has said it too. Before you break any of the other commands, you've already broken the first one. Before you steal, before you lie, before you commit adultery, before you murder, before you hate in your heart, before you do any of those things, you have already decided not to put God as first in your life. You put yourself in God's spot. It all starts from there. So the essence of sin is this rebellion against his nature and this decision to choose to put yourself in his spot. The universality of sin. The essence of sin. It's a problem for all people. It does not matter if you've been raised in the church or not. Doesn't matter if you know your Westminster Confession of Faith or not. What matters is who holds pride of place in your life. It's a problem for us all. How do we heal it? How do we heal that? Well, we're going to really drill down on that next week. So, you know, that's my plug to get you to come back. (laughs) But for the sake of time, Broadly speaking, what has to happen is the relationship has to be restored. That's how we get healed. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You hear that? Through faith, through this thing called faith, and we're going to talk more about it next week, but... But basically, through trusting Jesus' statement about who he says he is and trusting his statements about what he has come to do, you receive him, you acknowledge him. You Rather than shut the door in his face, you open the door to him to come into your life and take up residence and, and rule over you. You are recognizing him for who he is as the creator and as the redeemer. And when you do that, John says, you become children of God. The relationship is restored. It's flipped back to the way it's supposed to be. Now, what is that? Why, would, why is that? There's a place in... in, in Mark chapter 19, which comes before the story of the rich young ruler. And, or Matthew, sorry, did I say Mark? Matthew 19, you have this this story, and then the story of the rich young ruler. And Matthew organizes it that way for a purpose. And it's the story where Jesus has all these kids coming to him. And all these parents are trying to bring their kids to Jesus to bless them. And the disciples are like, get away. You know, like drop kicking these kids out of the way and keeping them back. I probably didn't drop kick them, but you know what I mean. Keeping them away from it. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, listen carefully to what the Bible says, okay? It doesn't say the kingdom of God belongs to these. It says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus is making a point. He's saying not that the kingdom of God is for childish people like children. 
He's not saying that the kingdom of God is just for children. He's saying the kingdom of God is for people who are childlike. This is the relationship. The kingdom of God is for people who are childlike. Why is that? Well, kids know two things. Little kids. We're not talking teenagers because boy, oh boy, they don't recognize these things. I can promise you that. But little kids recognize these things. They recognize, first of all, that they are completely and utterly dependent upon their parents. Yes, kids are selfish. I'm the first one to tell you that as often as I can. Little kids are demanding. Little kids are emotional and they have tantrums that flare up out of nowhere and you wonder what in the world is going on inside their head for them to behave this way. Yes, but there's something that all little kids know. They know that they are dependent on their parents and they are unashamed about it. This is why your little four-year-old, when you're at the park and you've been playing and it's time to go home, you say, come on, it's time to go home. And they go, and they fall over and they go, I'm so tired, carry me. And you say, no, you're fine. Get up, come on, you can walk. Oh, please, just carry me. And they're whiny and they're kind of sucky about it. Or when they're hungry, they say, I'm hungry. And they just come to you and they don't even ask you for anything. They don't say, please, may I have? They just say, I'm hungry. Or they call you in the middle of the night, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you're trying to get to sleep and all of a sudden you hear from their room, Mommy, I'm thirsty. Why? Because they know and understand grace. Your four-year-old doesn't say, carry me because I cleaned my room. Your little toddler doesn't say, feed me because I did the dishes. They don't say, I'm thirsty, get me something to drink. Remember, I cleaned up my toys before I went to bed like you asked. They know that they are needy. They know that they are dependent. They know that they haven't earned anything from you. They can just ask. And why are they so secure in just asking? Because the other thing that every little kid knows and just assumes is that they're loved. Now, don't raise in your mind all the objections of people who've been raised in, in abusive homes or neglectful homes where there are problems and kids don't know that. In every properly run home the one thing a kid knows is that they're loved and that's why that he can be so whiny because they're so secure listen i know this is absolutely true because i've been a foster parent and we've had toddlers in our homes and what is fascinating about toddlers and little kids that come into your home out out of whatever difficult situation they're in is that they often come into your home very well behaved. They're better behaved than your own kids. They're three, four, five, seven. We've had different ages. They come into your home and they're very well behaved. And you say, come here and whoosh, they come. You say, eat that. And they go, and they eat it. You say, bedtime. And they go, mm, and they fight back the tears. Actually, really sad. It's so sad to see. And you know why? 
because they don't know they're loved. They don't know. And so the relationship is based on fear and performance. And then they live with you for a couple of months and a couple months longer and a couple months longer. And they turn into whiny little brats. And it's wonderful. Because then you know, they know that you love them. And that they are secure. Despite their whininess and despite their brattiness, they are secure in, their, in your love. That, my friends, is what happens to you when you receive Jesus. You know you're totally dependent. You know you're totally loved. And sin is finally broken in your life. Not completely overcome. I've been on this journey a long time and I got a long way to go to overcome the power of sin in my life, but its back is broken. Because Jesus lived for you and died for you and rose for you and loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we admit we're sinners so that we can take the next step to lay down our arms as rebels against your will. And to rest in your amazing love. Shine that light of Jesus deep into the darkest recesses of our hearts. And restore us as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.